Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host. Welcome back to the show. This week, I am excited to talk to you about sex toys. And specifically, I have on a writer, an academic, and thinker who's done a whole book about how feminist sex shops got to be the way they are and why they're so important. We are going to have a fun time today that I promise you but you know, it'll be like you know in among the fun there'll be a lot of really smart stuff too you ready uh, I want to introduce you to Lynn Camella she is a writer professor researcher and sexographer and the author of the new book Vibrator Nation how feminist sex toy stores change the business of pleasure Lynn thanks for coming on on screen Oh, yeah, my pleasure, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. As soon as I saw the title of your book, I was like, I need to know more about this. <laughs> but before we get to any of that, it's traditional here on Unscrewed to put you through your paces with the lightning round. Are you ready? I, I, I am ready. Go okay. for it. <laughs> Don't be too nervous. First question is, what's been making you the happiest this week? Honestly, what's been making me the happiest this week is have working air conditioning in Las Vegas. Our air conditioning conked out yesterday, and you do not want to be without air conditioning in Las Vegas. So it has really been a pleasure to kind of be able to get it working again so I can kind of participate in this interview and literally not be melting in my living room. That is very important. What's the best sex advice you ever received from someone else? Honestly, I think I think it's pretty straightforward. I think the best sex advice, and I heard this over and over again from so many kind of sex educators and experts I know, is just the importance of communication. You know, best sex comes from being able to identify your own needs and communicate those needs and desires to somebody else. You know, I am right there with you. What's been making you maddest or saddest lately when it comes to news and current events around sexuality? You know, I mean, this is a little bit maybe of an indirect way of answering that question, but I think I've been preoccupied recently and certainly after kind of the events in Charlottesville of just, you know, really thinking about where's the place of pleasure in the resistance, you know, and how do we think about sex and pleasure at moments 
that just seems so fraught and so dire and where our energies are going elsewhere. So I, I guess I'm answering the question by talking about a preoccupation that I have around, you know, where do the politics of pleasure and sexuality kind of fit into you know, a political moment where there is just so much going on that just seems so significant and important and demands our energy in really vital ways. And then what does it mean to try to find a space for pleasure in that? I've been very preoccupied with that. And it's not something that necessarily makes me mad per se, but it's a concern and a question. Yeah, it's a thing I think about a lot too. I recommend if I may be self-serving, uh, I did an episode of this show with the inimitable Hannah Blunk right after the election. Yeah. That episode's called An Army of Lovers, and it's about that oh. actual question. I just played it over the summer as one of my hiatus reruns. So listeners may have just heard it. But if you haven't, folks should definitely go check out the Army of Lovers episode because it is about that. It's so important because the erotic part of our life force and the, the part of our lives that involves pleasure is disruptive in the most life affirming ways and can be mm -hmm. it's a, just a powerful source of resistance. I think it's an important question. What is the biggest myth about sex that you used to believe but don't believe anymore? You know, I was fed a lot of sexual myths growing up, and I don't think my parents really realized they were myths, but I was really a, a kind of susceptible to the myth that quote-unquote good girls don't. You know, that was very much communicated to me as a kid, and it really kind of boxed me in. You know, I was not a teenager who dated. I was, you know, certainly not sexually adventurous. And so I really absorbed that myth and really had to battle against that as I got older and kind of developed a sexual sense of myself and, and was really proactive and kind of pushing back against that stereotype or that myth that young girls and young women aren't supposed to be sexual. They're not supposed to be sexual in certain ways, and they're not supposed to be sexual outside the context of a kind of heterosexual monogamous relationship. Yeah. And lastly, who is one of the bravest people you know who's working to unscrew the sexual culture in one way or another? That's such a tough question for me because I feel like Everybody I interviewed for the book that we're going to be talking about, Vibrator Nation, is part of that vanguard of people who've really been key to that. But I'm going to give a shout out to Nina Joyner, who owns Feelmore in Oakland, California, because, you know, Nina started her business, I think it was 2011, and she specifically wanted to start a sex-positive, progressive sex shop for the African-American community. As an African-American lesbian, you know, she loved Good Vibrations, but she was really aware that she wasn't seeing kind of images and representations of herself and people she knew in the store. And she wanted to create a space that really catered to the people in her community, the black and brown people in particular, although she's there for everyone in Oakland. And I think her shop and the work that she's been doing locally in the Oakland community has been absolutely cutting edge, like at the forefront of really, really progressive sexual politics in a really robust intersectional way. Yay. I did, had not heard about her shop. I'm going to have to check it out next time I'm in Oakland. All right. You survived the lightning round. Awesome. <laughs> you did very well. So let's talk about Vibrator Nation. So you basically sure. have written a history of how 
feminist sex shops came to be and why they matter. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, it is. A history of these businesses really focusing on the the women who pioneered them. And I would say even beyond that a little bit, you know, part of what I argue is what we kind of now think of today in 2017 as the women's market for sex toys and pornography wouldn't have really taken shape or at least taken shape the way it did without those pioneering feminist entrepreneurs. So let's go in the Wayback Machine. (laughs) Take us back there to the early 70s. And can you give us like the little snapshot of of how the seed of what's become, you know, in every city I go to, practically, there's a feminist sex shop. Like, how did that happen? Yeah, well, that certainly wasn't always the case. And it wasn't the case in the early 1970s that there were feminist sex toy shops or even really women-friendly sex toy shops. So to kind of set the stage a little bit, feminists were addressing a whole host of things. But, you know, certainly by the early 1970s, in certain corners of the women's movement, feminists started to talk about the politics of sexuality. And they started to talk about it and write about it and organize conferences about it and bring a feminist analysis to sexual politics. And so you had a group of women who were starting to advance a program for social change, a feminist program for social change that really factored in the realm of sexuality, you know, and they were making a case that if we're going to make an argument that the person was political, we also have to pay attention to the politics of sexuality and even how meanings around female sexuality are being constructed. So there were things that started to happen, like Anne Coates' famous essay about the myth of the female orgasm. And and people started to push back against Sigmund Freud and his myth that vaginal intercourse between um, a man and a woman was the end-all and be-all sex. So we had these kind of feminist manifestos that started to be published that were challenging these very limited ideas of female sexuality and pleasure. And I would say that a really significant moment, at least in my book, and I talk about this in chapter one, was the 1973 National Organization for Women, the NOW Conference on Women's Sexuality that took place in New York City in 1973. And that was important because it was one of the first events of its kind to really focus on women and sexuality and feminism and sexuality. But it had 40 plus workshops throughout the weekend with a separate set of, you know, workshops for men. And it had workshops about race and sexuality and the politics of lesbianism and female masturbation. One of the key speakers was Betty Dotson. And Betty Dotson today is known as the kind of godmother of masturbation. But she got up on stage during the kind of introductory remarks and talked about her relationship to her vibrator. And it was just so groundbreaking. And so those kinds of things were starting to happen. But here's the kicker. Women started to get the message that masturbation was A-OK, that they should be doing more of it, that it was a great vehicle for learning about their bodies. They were also being told that vibrators could help them achieve orgasm or have an orgasm if they weren't orgasming regularly or easily. 
And so a lot of women started to say, well, that's really great. I like the idea of getting a vibrator, but where am I supposed to go to get one? Conventional adult stores aren't designed with me in mind. There's a few reputable, in quotes, reputable mail order companies um, that sell marital aids, but not many. And even going into a department store like a Macy's to get a back massager posed the risk of a woman being kind of embarrassed by a clerk, ostensibly a male clerk, kind of prodding her about what she might need her massager for. So, you know, this cultural context was being created where sex was being talked about more, pleasure was being talked about more, vibrators were being talked about more, and women were like, yeah, great, where do I get one? And we know, I mean, like, even now, like, I, it's so easy to order online, and yet I always want to go into the store because you want to feel like, do the how do the vibrations feel, and what, how heavy, yeah. you know, like, it's a tactile kind of thing that you want to go in. And Yeah, it is. I think it's so easy for us to forget in 2017, right? I mean, we have the internet at our disposal. We live in a post sex in the city world, right? And, you know, sex in the city was really groundbreaking for different reasons, but in part because of that rabbit vibrator episode. And we live in a post Fifty Shades of Grey world, right? So we have all these examples that we can point to in popular culture that are indicators of sex being out there more and more open conversations about female sexuality and more cultural representations of sex toys and vibrators. But that was not the way it was in the 1970s. Mm. And I heard that from, obviously, some of the early entrepreneurs, such as Dell Williams, who started Eve's Garden in 1974. You know, she initially started selling vibrators out of her Manhattan apartment. You know, she would come home after a day of working as an account executive and fill orders for vibrators from her kitchen. So she told me stories of, you know, what it was like for her and women that she knew in the women's movement who were trying to kind of, you know, reclaim their sexuality and bust through these myths, as did Joni Blank, who is the founder of Good Vibes. But I'll tell you, the moment in time when those stories got really, really real for me was when I went to visit Del Williams's papers. Her papers now exist at Cornell University in their human sexuality collection. And by that point, I had already interviewed Dell quite extensively on several occasions. But visiting her papers, I was seeing some things that I hadn't kind of seen before. And there was a box. It was a restricted box. I needed special permission to access what was inside the box. But it was a box full of customer letters from women and men who wrote to her in the 1970s, the 1980s, and the early 1990s. And these letters were like confessionals and testimonials. And they just poured out their hearts to this woman who you know, was running a vibrator shop saying, thank God you exist. Thank you for the catalog. Just receiving the catalog, I feel better about myself. Just going into your you know, New York showroom was a life-changing experience. There's no one else I can talk to. Can you answer my question? I've been struggling with this issue. My doctor tells me you know, I shouldn't be having these desires. My girlfriend tells me I shouldn't be having these desires. Del, I, I want my wife to have an orgasm so badly. Can you give me advice? It was just 
there was no way that anyone reading those letters could deny that Dell Williams and her business, Eve's Garden, was filling a need in our culture and in our society for people to have access to information, access to products, and importantly, access to somebody who is going to be sympathetic with their concerns and take their sexual lives seriously. I I get goosebumps, Jacqueline, when I think about those letters because they were just the most amazing historical documentary evidence of what it was like for women to basically finally find resources that they had never had access to before in their lives. So, and that's not the only sort of behind the scenes access you got in your research. You actually embedded yourself as a clerk. To do the research I wanted to do, I very much wanted to get an inside perspective of a feminist sex toy store. And I approached the founders of Babeland, Claire Cavanaugh and Rachel Venning. And I asked about doing a kind of internship at the store as a researcher, you know, that I would both be kind of working on the sales floor, but I would also you know, be wearing my researcher's hat. And they were like, yeah, we really liked that idea. So they brought me in. They trained me to work on the sales floor the way that they were training everybody at the time, like a real immersion in sex ed and sexual knowledge, but also learning about the products and then also, you know, learning the retail end of it. So what did you learn on the floor? I learned that people of all ages want good sex lives and want more sexual pleasure. There were kids that on their 18th birthday, as soon as they could legally come into the shop, they would come into the shop and they would shop for their first vibrator. You had women of all ages that would come in, you know, sometimes with an air of a little bit of desperation about them. Women in their 40s, 50s, 60s who would take you aside and say, I've never had an orgasm before. My doctor thinks that, or my therapist or my friend thinks that a vibrator could help. What might you recommend? Couples who would come in, you know, presumably straight couples who would linger by the dildos and harnesses and finally get up the courage to ask about pegging because it was something that they were interested in trying. So I learned that people of all ages, of all backgrounds, of all walks of life, are, you know, really interested in feeling more sexual vitality, more sexual aliveness. They want information. People are really, when it comes to sex, I learned that people are very aware of what they don't know. I wonder if you compare your customers at Babeland with the customer letters, the folks who wrote into Dell. I mean, I know it's not a one-to-one comparison because the people who would be moved to write that letter aren't, you know, necessarily every customer that walks in the door. But what do you, what do you feel like has changed since the seventies and what, what's still the same? I mean, I think the big, big difference is the number of, you know, resources that people do have available to them today. I mean, I would argue one constant is that we still live in a society that's still pretty sexually anemic. <laughs> you know, there, there still are just huge gaps in people's opportunity to get accurate sexual information. School-based sex ed is still a mess. I know that from researching and writing about it in Nevada, how uneven it is, how adrift young people are. 
And so I think that, you know, one of the constants is this search for sexual information and resources that was definitely present among women and men in the 1970s. And I think it's still present in adults of all ages today. I think one of the things that's different is, again, that hunger is still there. There are more resources now. So, for example, in the 1970s, it was a revelation for a woman to even discover a place like Eve Garden existed. Now people know that places like Babeland, Good Vibrations, Feel More, Sugar, Self-Serve, Mitten Kitten, you know, all these really progressive, feminist, queer-friendly sex shops that exist in cities across the country and in, in other countries, too. People know that those are places where they can go and that questions are welcomed and that if they do have a question, if they do work up the courage to ask it, they're probably going to get some really good information from the well-trained staff that work that there. 
education and offers an array of free weekly workshops through their Pleasure Ed program, which is open to anyone looking to expand their pleasure IQ. Their highly trained and sensitive staff is ready to help you find what you're looking for in a safe and judgment-free environment. Prefer to do your sexy shopping online? Visit PleasureChest.com and browse their diverse range of products and special collections curated by today's top sex educators like past unscrewed guests L. Chase and Tristan Taramino, plus Midori, Reed Macalo, and lots more. Check out PleasureChest.com for a complete listing of upcoming events nationwide. And because I got y'all, you can use the code UNSCREWED at checkout and enjoy a free Pleasure Chest lube with every purchase. All right. See you out there. Now back to the show. You know, I think about this a lot because I worked for a while for a feminist bookstore, mm. which I think are pretty close analogs in terms of groundbreaking, mission-driven mm-hmm. community spaces that also run on capitalism. But overall, the field of feminist sex toy shops is pretty healthy. Although I do want to also ask you what you think about the Good Vibes Babeland merger. Whereas feminist bookstores, you know, New Words Bookstore, which is the one that I worked for, you know, closed in 2002. And I miss it constantly, even still, you know, there are still some, but Mm -hmm. there are a lot fewer feminist bookstores. Mm -hmm. I wonder what you think is the difference between the two, like that made feminist sex toy shops thrive where feminist bookstores have struggled. You know, I I don't have a super great answer for that other than to say, I think that feminist sex toy shops opened in different cities across the country and carried, you know, the good vibrations model and its DNA of sex education and open conversations about sex into these different cities. And in doing so, Every store that opened helped bust through, you know, myths of sexual shame and helped normalize conversations about sex, help mainstream sex toys. So I think that, you know, their growth was in some ways a byproduct of just how successful the feminist sex toy mission was in kind of opening up conversations and creating kind of more space in the culture for what these businesses were doing. And as they did that, I think, you know, sex toys just became things that people were more comfortable buying. And, you know, I don't think books have ever had to bust through myths in the way that female sexuality and sex toys and queer sexuality have had to kind of really stake a claim to a place in the cultural conversation. It's true. The product was not covered in shame, mm-hmm. although some of the books were. I mean, <laughs> books about sex, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Or lesbianism. But books as a category weren't sort of shrouded in misinformation. Mm-hmm. Certainly yeah. there was a lot of stigma attached to women opening their own businesses that I know that feminist bookshop owners had to overcome alongside feminist sex shop owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the sort of opening of the space is showing that women can be small business entrepreneurs or not even so small. Yeah. So every feminist bookstore that still exists today and the ones that continue to thrive, I applaud them because, you know, clearly it has not been easy even for the ones that are doing well. And I think what's really important is Small feminist businesses succeed largely because they have a customer base 
that is committed to ensuring that they succeed. Yeah. That should not be ignored. You know, people make a decision to shop at a bookstore as opposed to, you know, buying from Amazon or buying from Barnes and Noble. And every book they buy from a small feminist bookshop or just an independent bookshop in their town, it's making a statement about the types of businesses they want to support and, you know, kind of where their values are. You know, very similar to people who go out of their way to shop at a Bayland or go out of their way to shop at Fillmore in Oakland or self-serve in Albuquerque or sugar in Baltimore. These things are not here indefinitely. They're not a public utility, right? Like they're only going to be here to the extent that you patronize them. Absolutely. 100%. I am with you with that message. And, you know, the biggest tension that I found in my research, and it's a tension that kind of runs throughout, you know, the book is this tension between profitability and social change. And most, if not all, but most of the entrepreneurs that started these progressive feminist identified sex toy shops did so because they really wanted something that they could get behind and really felt like opening up a feminist sex shop was a way to empower women. And then they eventually realized it was a way to empower everyone because all types of people wanted to shop there. And they led with this mission of social change. And they led with this idea that they were doing good in the world. And what lagged behind in many cases was business savvy. It took a long time for some of these small feminist businesses to really kind of be able to balance the emphasis on their missions of social change with the money piece of running a business because many of them, it was fascinating to talk to business owners who said, I hate being called a business owner. <laughs> like, but, yeah. but you're a business owner. Oh, I know, but I just hate it. You know, Good Vibrations, Joni Blank. Oh, I knew her for a decade and she just, Oh, she would scrunch up her face. She would, you know, just, ugh. she just hated to be called, you know, a business owner. And if she had her druthers, she would have um, happily opened a social service agency dedicated to sexuality. But she opened a store instead because she wanted to get vibrators into the hands of people and she couldn't afford to give everyone one, although she kept prices very low. So you have these entrepreneurs, many of whom really had an uneasy relationship to capitalism. Yeah. And who have to make really, I know from the bookstore, you know, like have to make really tough decisions about like the mix of stock to carry in terms of like, are we focusing on the stuff that we think will fly out the door? Are we focusing on the stuff that we think is the best stuff to promote, right? Like those are not always the same categories. (laughs) So all that said, you know, a lot of us who are around sort of sex education and, and sex industries thought it was big news this summer when it was announced that Good Vibes and Babeland are basically merging. That Good Vibes, I think, is buying Babeland. The Babeland stores are going to stay Babeland branded, but they're going to be part of Good Vibes now. I wonder what your take is on that. Is that like good news? Is it a bad sign because they needed to? Like, I, I wonder what you make of it. Sure. Well, it's huge news. And I was stunned. I'm like, whoa, did not see that happening. In some ways, it makes perfect sense because Babeland's founders, Claire Cavanaugh and Rachel Venning, when they decided they wanted to open their first store in Seattle, they reached out to Good Vibrations founder, Joni Blank, and they said, we want to open a business like yours. And she said, huh, that's cool. Guess what? I'm going to be in Seattle for a conference. Why don't we meet? So they met, they had a little consultation, 
And Joni said to Claire, why don't you come and spend some time in San Francisco at Good Vibrations and we will teach you everything that you need to know about how to go back to Seattle and open up a sex toy store like ours. So I love the poetry of that. I do. But I wonder what you think about what it means in terms of the health of the industry and the, and the businesses. Um, I think that the mainstreaming of sex toys has been great in that it's gotten kind of sex toys and sex information into the hands of more people, but it also kind of has cut into the profit margins of some of these smaller businesses because more businesses are doing what they're doing. They're not quite as you know unique or novel. So I end the book saying in some ways it's not clear what the future holds for feminist sex toy stores. And yet, it is certainly the case that the model that they have advanced has now really become the industry standard, that even, quote unquote, conventional adult stores or mainstream adult stores have adopted elements of the Good Vibrations retail model. You know, it's not unusual to see women on the sex shop floor. It's not unusual to have an educational component or to have workshops. So, What I make of this, and I think this is a really important point, is in the early 1970s, there were very interesting conversations in the pages of the radical feminist newspaper Off Our Backs that were discussing whether or not there could even be such a thing as a feminist business. And there were differing opinions about this. Some people were arguing that feminist businesses were the wave of the future, that it was all about invention and innovation, and that they could really kind of take capitalism and use it to kind of make the world a better place. On the other hand, there were feminists saying feminism and capitalism are completely incompatible. There's absolutely no such thing as feminist businesses. Capitalism is a tool of oppression. Feminists shouldn't be participating in this system. But one of the key points that they made was that they feared that feminist businesses would be useful up until the point where they carved out new consumer niches. Mm -hmm. And then mainstream businesses would swoop in and co-opt the market that feminist businesses had worked so hard to cultivate. And part of what I discuss in the book's conclusion is the reality that we've seen some of that happen with feminist sex toy shops. You know, we, we've seen these feminist businesses slog through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then about a decade ago, mainstream adult industry retailers, wholesalers, and distributors were like, wow, let's get on the woman train. That sounds profitable. <laughs> To be fair with the Good Vibrations buying Bayland, I've had the chance to since talk to Bayland founder Rachel Benning. I spoke with her last week, and I'm going to be writing a blog post on my website about the sale. But it was very much the case that after almost 25 years of running this company, which they had started on a shoestring budget in Seattle um, with not a lot of startup money, They were ready for new adventures in their lives, but they wanted to make sure that Babeland's mission and brand lived on and that it was sold to a company that completely got, you know, what Babeland was about. And so in that sense, there's no better company than Good Vibrations to kind of take over and move Babeland, you know, into a new era. I have one last question before we wrap which is just sort of to build on this place what you've taken us to, which is 
why is it important to have, you know, if, if we can get these things all in these other places, what are the things going forward in 2017 and forward that feminist sex toy shops are in a unique position to do that the other parts of the industry that have sort of like been like, oh, look, there's a market can't serve as well? Having a woman working on the sales floor isn't necessarily the same thing as having, you know, a business model that, you know, has been mission driven from the ground up and really taking care in terms of who you hire and what products you select and how your staff is trained and, you know, what kind of, you know, community um, advocate and resource you are, right? piecemeal adopting certain elements like, oh, I used to be this kind of sex shop, but now I'm going to paint my walls lavender. Isn't the same (laughs) thing as, right? Right? It's not the same thing as saying my business is 110% dedicated to X, Y, and Z. And we spell this out in our mission and we live this every day. And we want to make sure that every customer that comes into our store, regardless of what they're coming in, searching for, looking for, feels like, They've had an experience with our staff, with our product mix, with kind of what we offer them that can't be replicated elsewhere. So it's really that that quality of in-store experience that, you know, really sets these, these feminist sex toy stores apart. And they offer classes that are grounded in social justice principles as well as good sex positive sex education. I know that Early to Bed in Chicago has a great program where they make sure that trans guys who need packies or binders like can get them whether or not they can pay like they they just are really community oriented in ways uh self-serve for example puts on like a film festival like you know all this stuff that your average shop is just not going to do yeah yeah it's very true well thank you so much for coming on the show i feel like we've barely scratched the surface of the fascinating history you tell in the book so people you should definitely go Use a feminist bookstore if you can and buy Vibrator Nation, Lynn Camilla's new book. Lynn, are you doing a tour? Where can people follow you online? Let us know how we can connect with you. Sure, thanks. Well, I am doing a tour, which I'm super excited about. Um, It's going to kick off on September 15th. And so all the dates of the book tour, which will be, you know, I'll be traveling to cities like LA and Seattle and Chicago and Albuquerque and Baltimore and DC. All that information can be found on my website, which is www.lincamella.com. There's a book tour tab that folks can click on. And please, if I'm coming to your city or a city near you, come out because I'm going to be stopping at a lot of the businesses that I write about. And you know, you'll have an opportunity to, you know, really get a sense even from people that started those businesses, what their work and mission is like. Is like. I also want to kind of plug, I have a really fun Instagram account that I started a few months ago, which is vibrator underscore nation. I'm basically sharing a lot of the sex toy history and vintage advertisements and all this kind of ephemera that I've collected, you know, over the course of my research and kind of, you know, talking a little bit about the history of some of these businesses, pioneers, and I've been having a lot of fun kind of curating this more historical Instagram account. So that's the other thing I'd like to plug if people are interested. That is so fun. And I will go check that out. I did not know about that. Are you on like Twitter or anywhere else? 
am on Twitter and it's just at Lynn Camella. Excellent. And I am at Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F on Twitter and Facebook. And I'm at Jacqueline Fable on Instagram. You can also find me and my upcoming tour dates for Unscrewed the Book woohoo, uh, at JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. You can find this fantastic podcast, Unscrewed, wherever your podcasts are available. Or if you like to get your podcast somewhere and we're not there, let me know and I'll make sure we're there. Uh, so you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Acast, on Stitcher, and wherever you are, take a minute, please, please, Give us five stars. Give us a two-sentence review. It makes such a big difference in helping other listeners to find the show. Unscrewed is produced and edited by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman. Our in-and-out music is by The Pink Tiles. And our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was developed in collaboration with The Establishment, who also developed the sound cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.